So if you're visiting, we're in a sermon series on the undomesticated attributes of God. And today we're going to be looking at God's eternality. We're going to be thinking about the God of timeless eternity. The God who is not limited by time, but actually transcends time. A God who is unbounded by time. The God who never uses a calendar and doesn't own an Apple watch, if you can believe it. The God who always has been and always will be. The God who simply is all the time. And it's this God, Christian, the God who doesn't own an Apple watch, who is your help. It's the God of timeless eternity who holds you in his arms. And so the doctrine of God's eternality can comfort your heart. It can help you stop biting your fingernails down to your elbows. It can help you face the future and face the unknown without fear, without anxiety, or even dread. Sound good? I think so. Because I need the comfort of God's timeless eternity. I need to learn how to stop dreading things. Do you dread things? The eternality of God is the cure. And that's the undomesticated attribute of God that we will see today in Deuteronomy 33. So turn there in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 33. Here's the context. The nation of Israel has roamed the wilderness for 40 years because of their sin and rebellion. And now they are getting ready to enter into the promised land. So there are a lot of unknowns ahead for them. And their leader Moses is getting old. I mean really old. 120 years old to be exact. He's seen a lot in his life. And he is about to breathe his last breath. He's about to start pushing up daisies. He's about to croak. So what's the last thing that Moses says to the nation of Israel as they prepare to enter into the promised land without him? How does he wrap up his final sermon at Wilderness Baptist Church before he croaks? Answer, he reminds them of God's eternality. He reminds them that Yahweh is a gracious God and there is no one like him because he forgives sinners and he helps them and he takes care of them. And that's actually not a bad way to wrap up 40 plus years of ministry with the church in your final sermon, right? You focus on the God of timeless eternity. Maybe Moses' big idea in his final sermon was like ours today. You feeling wobbly? Then one, look to Jesus, and two, rest in his everlasting arms. That's the gospel according to Moses' final sermon. Now, let me show you where I'm getting all that. Deuteronomy chapter 33, beginning in verse 26. We're just going to look at that. We're going to read it twice, actually. Hear the word of the Lord. There is none like God, O Jeshurun, who rides through the heavens to your help, through the skies in his majesty. There is none like God, O Jeshurun, 
who rides through the heavens to your help, through the skies in his majesty. So Moses is about to die, and he turns the nation of Israel's attention to the uniqueness of Yahweh. Moses is talking about God's holiness, that there is no one like him, no one. No other so-called God in the ancient Near East can stack up against the Lord because no one is like Yahweh at all. And it's this almighty, all-powerful God who loves these fickle people known as the nation of Israel. I mean, imagine that. God loves these people who turned from him and began worshiping other gods and wandered the desert for 40 years. And that's why Moses calls them Jeshurun in verse 26. Why does Moses call the nation of Israel Jeshurun? Because Jeshurun means upright one. Wait, what? Israel, upright ones? If you know your Bible, hardly. I mean, Moses has been with these fickle people for 40 years. They are not upright. They sin, they grumble, they complain. They say things like, we missed the leeks and the melons in Egypt. Can we go back to Pharaoh, please? They complain. They worship golden calves. They don't believe the report of Joshua and Caleb about possessing the promised land. And Moses has the audacity in verse 26 in his final sermon to call them upright ones. Really? Interestingly, Jeshurun is actually a pet name. It's a poetic term of endearment, a term of affection that the Lord uses for his people. He gives them the nickname upright ones. Some older scholars even suggest that Jeshurun could have the etymology of a word that means good little people. And I like that. We are little helpless people that aren't good in and of ourselves, but we have been declared righteous by God. We're good, righteous little people because of Jesus. This is the gospel according to Moses is about to die. This is how God actually sees his people. They are righteous and blameless in God's eyes. And that's why Moses says in verse 26 that there is no one like Yahweh because he forgives sinners and he declares them righteous. And it's this forgiving, righteousness, crediting God who rides on the clouds in resplendent majesty and power as the divine warrior to help his people. Now, this is obviously a dig, a polemical insult at the Canaanite god Baal. Baal was seen as the god of thunder, lightning, and rain. The Canaanites believed that he rode on the clouds. And as they're about to enter into Canaanite territory, Moses is telling them, Yahweh is actually the one who rides on the clouds, not Baal. It's their god, Yahweh, who is the real divine warrior who rides on the clouds in majesty. Yahweh rides on the clouds as a triumphant warrior. Picture that. 
but then he also descends to help his little people. And he holds them up, as we'll see in verse 27 in a moment, he holds them up in his everlasting arms. So there truly is no one like our God. He's a divine warrior who holds his little people in his arms. Here's the good news straight out of Moses' mouth. The there is no one like him God comes as the divine warrior to help his little people. And that just might be enough truth about God to get you through this week. So the good little people are helped by the God who rides on the clouds in power. Their help is in the name of Yahweh, not their soon-to-be-pushing-up-Daisy's leader, Moses. Their hope is not in Moses. Their hope is in Yahweh. As David says in Psalm 124.8, our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. When it speaks about God's name, it means his character. It's who he is, his attributes, what we're looking at in this series. All that we are learning about God, that is our help. Our help is in the name, the character of the Lord. You may not know this, but Psalm 124.8 was most likely John Calvin's favorite verse. The great reformer. Psalm 124.8 is how John Calvin started his church services in Geneva every single week. So evidently this was one of his favorite verses in all of scripture because these were the first words that you heard as church started each week in Calvin's church. I wish I could go back in time and experience a worship service at Calvin's church. Now, don't get me wrong. I love John Calvin, but I have not invited him into my heart, okay? As Ralph Davis says, your help is in the name of the Lord, not in the name of your favorite Christian hero. Our help is in the name of the Lord, not our favorite preacher, not our favorite author, not our favorite pastor, not our favorite Christian musician. Our help is in the name of the Lord. But I'd still like to go back in time to worship in Geneva. And if I could, I would hear Psalm 124, verse 8, because that was the call to worship every single week in Calvin's church. And what a great reminder. What a great reminder as you came into church full of burdens, full of worries, full of concerns. And what do you hear when the service starts? Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Whatever you are going through right now, Christian, your help is in the name, the character of the Lord, who he is. Your help is in the name of Jesus. Let that truth confront whatever it is that's stressing you out this morning. Let that be your confession today. My help is in the name of the Lord who rides on the clouds to help me. And when you feel like you just can't go on, just tell yourself, my help is in the name of the Lord who rides on the clouds to help me. Understand this. True freedom comes in the Christian life. True satisfaction comes when you can admit that you are, in fact, helpless. That means if your help is in the name of the Lord, then that means you are helpless. You're helpless and you need help. So to come to Jesus, you have to wear a name tag that says, Hello, I'm helpless. And Psalm 124 and Deuteronomy 33 are telling us that 
Helplessness is how the Christian life works. From beginning to end, the Christian life is all about being helpless. And if you don't understand that, then you will be unnecessarily disappointed as a disciple. Our tagline here at Grace is that we want to stay busy making disciples, making disciples. And that means teaching people that one, they are helpless. And two, their help is in the name of the Lord. So the sooner you and I embrace our weaknesses and our helplessness, then the sooner we'll start enjoying life and actually enjoying God. But then Moses moves on to tell Israel that God is eternal. Look at verse 27. We'll read it twice. The eternal God is your dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. And he thrust out the enemy before you and said, destroy The eternal God is your dwelling place. And underneath are the everlasting arms. And he thrust out the enemy before you and said, destroy. So what's the first thing Moses tells the nation of Israel right after he prays a blessing on each of the 12 tribes? Because that's what he did prior to this. He blessed each and every one of the 12 tribes of Israel. He tells them, about the eternality of Yahweh as he wraps up his sermon. So what does Moses emphasize right before his death, perhaps even moments before his death? You need to know that Yahweh is eternal. Their leader is about to die, and the nation of Israel needs comfort, and Moses gives them that comfort by reminding them about the one who will hold them up in their sorrow, in their sadness, as they walk into the unknown, as they await their future. The eternal God is their dwelling place as they walk into the unknown of the promised land that lies before them. The land is not really their dwelling place. It's the Lord. And the Lord is yours too, Christian. But what does it mean that God is eternal? Because I think most Christians would affirm that. Yes, God, he's eternal. But it's not an easily understood doctrine, even though we all affirm it. What does it mean that God is the God of timeless eternity? God is eternal, but he does reveal himself in time and space. In the incarnation of Jesus' proof, as Paul tells us in Galatians 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So Jesus did enter into time and space in his incarnation as the God-man, even though he is the God of timeless eternity. So we're speaking of the God of timeless eternity, his essence, his nature, who he is in the Godhead. But we have to use time-bound terminology to speak about him, don't we? Augustine of Hippo said this of God, Your years do not come and go. Your today does not give way to tomorrow, nor follow yesterday. Your today is eternity. Let that sink in. God's today is eternity. He doesn't experience successive moments. He doesn't experience seconds, minutes, hours, days, weeks, months, or years. His today is eternity. His eternity is timeless. So he doesn't experience endless successive moments like we do. He does not experience 
successive states of being. He simply is. And that's not simply understood by us, is it? James Dolezal says, God is so perfect and infinite in being that no new state of being can come upon him and neither can any state of being slip away from him. He is purely and infinitely actual in all that he is. So God is outside of time altogether. He is not in time because that would mean that he is bound by time with all of its limitations and thus he would be restricted by successive moments. And this is why God's eternality is hard to grasp because all that we know are successive moments, one after another. All we know is that Pastor Benji picked up his tea and then he took a sip. And then he put his tea back down. And then he continued preaching. That's all we know. Successive moments that come one after another like waves. But God does not experience time like this. He's actually outside of time. And so the eternal God that Moses is talking about is so perfect that he never experiences any new states of being. He's above all limitations and successions of time. He never has to wait to see how things play out. We do, though. We read the Bible, and we see the grand story of redemption playing out with each successive moment following one after another. But we must be clear that God is not going through the same sequence as us. He simply is. We see redemption play out in space and time. But God doesn't because he is above all successions of time. Stephen Charnock states, All other things pass from one state to another, from their original to their eclipse and destruction. But God possesses his being in one indivisible point, having neither beginning, end, nor middle. And Edward Lay, who worked with the Westminster Assembly back in the 1600s, defines eternity and time in a very similar way. He says, Eternity is a being without limitation of time, or a being without beginning, ending, or succession. Time is the continuance of things past, present, and to come. All time hath a beginning, a vicissitude, and an end, or may have, but God's essence is bounded by none of these hedges. So all of creation moves from one state of being to another. Now, hopefully I'm a better husband to Heather after almost 25 years of being married. I have changed, and I have not changed in many ways. But ever since June 21st, 1997, I have been successively, not necessarily successfully, but I've been successively, I hope, becoming a better husband. I have successive states of being, but God doesn't. So time as we know it is the measurement of movement between two states of being. For instance, from the moment that Moses pronounced these blessings on the nation of Israel to the time he climbed up on Mount Pisgah and died, time passed. And so we measure Moses' blessing of the nation and his death by time. Or for Israel, from their rebellion at Kadesh Barnea to this moment as they're about to enter into the promised land, we measure that by time, by 40 years. But God does not experience time like this. 
As Francis Turton says, God has every moment at once whatever we have dividedly by succession of time. God sees all of time at once. Thomas Aquinas said that God is instantaneous, whole, lacking successiveness. That's the eternality of God. God has every moment at once. No successive moments. Instantaneous whole. And because God is instantaneously whole, only he can avoid the change that comes with the passing of time. And so his nature, his essence is eternal. He exists unchangeably, as we saw several weeks ago, because he is immutable, meaning he cannot change. While time is in progression. He does not become anything or change in any way. So there is no before or after with God. There is no past or future. All that there is, is, is in God. Hmm. That's a grammatically incorrect, but I think it's a theologically correct sentence. Let me say it again. All that there is, is, is in God. All that there is, is, is in God. Because he is Yahweh. I am that I am. He simply is. In fact, three times in the Bible, we get the threefold description of God as being is. Revelation 1.4. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. This is talking about his eternality. Is, was, is. Revelation 1.8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Revelation 4.8, and the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So in Revelation, John says it about Jesus, and Jesus says it about himself, and the four living creatures around God's throne say it day and night. And they never cease to say this threefold repetition of the one word is, who was and is and is to come. So the eternality of God is repeated along with God's holiness nonstop. And that's exactly what Moses highlights here in Deuteronomy 33. His holiness, there is none like God. And his eternality, the eternal God. So these are the two descriptors of God that get repeated in a threefold manner, nonstop around his throne. God's holiness, which just means that he is set apart and different from all creation. There is a creator and creature distinction and then his eternality that he is. And it is to this holy and is God that Moses directs the nation of Israel on the eve of his death. And who better to look to when you're facing the unknown or when you're stressed about the future or when you feel so overwhelmed that you can't breathe? You look to the God who is And that means that you don't have to fear what might happen in the future because guess what? Jesus is already there. You don't have to dread things. Why? Because Jesus is already there in that moment that you are dreading. Do you dread things? Dread is a powerful thing, isn't it? 
just kind of moves in uninvited into our hearts and it makes itself at home and it changes our reality. And then suddenly we're dreading things like work and dreading that hard conversation that we know we need to have or dreading seeing that person at that event or that place. You fill in the blank. What do you dread? I love what Beth Moore says about dread. Dread is a person prophesying the unfaithfulness of God. Our dread is a false prophet saying, my God will not be faithful. There will not be enough grace for me to get by. I will not be able to get by in his strength. Dreading can be worse than just doing the thing. Dread rehearses a scenario over and over without grace showing up. Dread is prophesying that God will not be faithful to me in any given situation that worries me. Dread is a false prophet preaching the same old message 100 different ways. God will not be faithful to you. Isn't that good? Dread is a very normal experience in this fallen world, but that's because we forget that the Holy Spirit is with us. Because we forget that God is eternal. That he was and is and is to come. So how about this? Let's stop listening to the false prophet of dread. Let's quit rehearsing scenarios over and over again where we think his grace is not going to show up. Listen, the Holy Spirit is waiting for you ahead of time in that situation that you dread. He's already there in that conversation that you don't want to have. He is smack dab in the middle of everything that you dread. So you know what you do? You just show up and you trust him. Because dreading something can actually be worse than just showing up and doing whatever it is that you're dreading. Right? Duh. We, We dread these things and that's worse than actually just showing up and doing whatever it is that we dread. So dread is a false prophet preaching the same message to us 100 different ways that God will not be faithful to you. And that is a lie. So you have to preach to your heart that God is faithful, that the eternal God is one, he is your help, and two, he is your dwelling place. In fact, in Psalm 90, Moses echoes the same things that he says here in Deuteronomy 33, using the exact same words. He says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He is our refuge. He is our hiding place, our dwelling place. This word is used in the Old Testament for lion's dens. It's a place of rest and security for lions, especially for female lions when they were pregnant or had just given birth. Moses is telling Israel that the eternal God is where they dwell, that they are in him. They're safe. They're secure. And that's good news for wobbly Christians like us, isn't it? I love what Alec Motier said. Oh dear, we are wobbly Christians, aren't we? We fall over endless times. We need the word of God to wobbly Christians. And what is that word? Have a look at Jesus. Let me ask you a question. You feeling wobbly? Then one, look to Jesus 
and two, rest in his everlasting arms. And that's exactly where Moses directs Israel's attention next. The everlasting arms of God. Look at verse 27 again. The eternal God is your dwelling place and underneath are the everlasting arms. And he thrust out the enemy before you and said, destroy. The eternal God is our true dwelling place. And underneath us and everything that we're going through in our families, in our lives, in our church, anything, underneath are his everlasting arms. Moses is telling Israel, don't make the unknown your dwelling place. Don't make some future experience your dwelling place. Don't make something that you dread, something that you fear, something that stressed you out. Don't make that the dwelling place of your heart. Make it the eternal God. And the same is true for us. Don't look to some future meeting, some future conversation, some future situation, something that's causing dread and panic and anxiety. Don't look to that to give you hope and peace and rest or don't look at it in in fear. Instead, look to Jesus, the eternal God. Don't look to the past and mourn and wallow in regret, but look to Jesus, the eternal God. And don't look to something in the present for your security and joy. Look to Jesus, the eternal God. Only the eternal God can satisfy us. We experience successive moments all through our lives where pleasures come and go, but the only but only the eternal God can truly satisfy us for all eternity. As Matthew Barrett says, everything we enjoy in this world is dissatisfying for two reasons. One, it doesn't last, but is short-lived. And two, the object itself does not prove ultimately satisfying, but falls in short in some way. God defies both. Since he is an eternal being, enjoyment of God will never cease. Since he is an infinitely beautiful, majestic, and glorious being, enjoyment of God will prove more than we could ever take in. How can I spend eternity enjoying God? Won't that get old? No, it never will. Why? Because each attribute of God is infinite. His love is an infinite love. His grace, an infinite grace. His holiness, an infinite holiness. His power, an infinite power. It will take an eternity to enjoy God because he is an infinitely grandiose being. How foolish it is to place our delight in that which is transient, momentarily satisfying, when the greatest pleasure, the supreme delight of our souls we are made to enjoy, is not only offered to us through Christ, but lasts for eternity. The eternity of God should rebuke us for thinking that something impermanent and only temporarily sufficient could be better than a God who is eternally fulfilling. I like that description of God. He is eternally fulfilling. When somebody asks you about the God you work, you worship at work, maybe at work, somebody says, tell me about this Jesus. You say, you know what? He's eternally fulfilling. Eternally satisfying. That might open up a conversation. The eternal God will eternally satisfy us. We will glorify and enjoy him forever. But until then, until the day of eternal God enjoying, we need Deuteronomy chapter 33 reminders about his everlasting arms, don't we? 
So when we come to the end of ourselves and we find that we can no longer think, you're just losing it. And you can't pray. It's just hard to pray. And you find it difficult to trust him. And you feel like you're going to lose it. You're going to lose your marbles. Still, underneath all that is causing our heads and our hearts to spin will always be the everlasting arms of our Savior. Savior. Underneath all the chaos and the drama and the fear and the anxiety and the dread are the everlasting arms of Jesus. So Christian, this is the one true reality about you. No matter what is going on in your life this morning, underneath you are the everlasting arms holding you up. Arms to sustain you, arms to hold you, arms to carry you. Arms to carry you close to his heart. As the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 40, Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. I think Isaiah has Deuteronomy 33 in mind here. The eternal, almighty God carries his wobbly, frail people in his arms. This is discipleship. Learning to embrace your sheepness and letting the eternal God carry you. That's discipleship 101. We talk about making disciples, making disciples here at Grace. Part of that is teaching people, number one, embrace your sheepness. You're a sheep, and you're wobbly, and you fall over a lot, and you do stupid things. And number two, let the eternal God carry you, because he already is carrying you. And so here's the practical kind of street-level application of the doctrine of God's eternality, what it looks like, and I think it's at the heart of what Moses is praying here in Deuteronomy 33. I think you can boil it down to this comforting thought from the Heidelberg Catechism, question one. This is what the doctrine of the eternality of God means for you, Christian. Question, what is your only comfort in life and death? Answer, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, By his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. I can't think of a better thought as we prepare our hearts to celebrate the Lord's Supper. So let me ask you again. Feeling wobbly? Then one, look to Jesus. And two, rest in his everlasting arms. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are faithful. 
and that all of these truths here in your word that we've looked at today and in this catechism question are true. We are not our own. We belong to you, both in life and death. You have fully paid for all of our sins with your precious blood. You have set us free. You are even preserving us in such a way that not even a single hair can fall from our head unless you will it to. In fact, everything must work together for our good and for your glory. Thank you for assuring us of eternal life through your finished work. The gospel makes us ready from now on to live for you. So as we approach the Lord's Supper, Jesus, forgive us. Show us our sin. May we repent and turn from it and then look quickly to you. May we just collapse in your arms because that's all repentance is. Just falling into your arms, Jesus. Forgive us, cleanse us, wash us, and then empower us to live for you. We ask in your name. Amen.